This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord and after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are Lord of the church. You are Lord of all. And we gather together, Lord, with um, wonder and awe that we could be called your body. So, Lord, help us to continue to live in the reality and the identity that you have given us And give us an eagerness this morning to learn from you. And we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Be seated. So when I was a uh, senior in high school, second semester um, of senior year, I took an economics uh, class. It was the first time I'd taken uh, many economics classes in school. Um, And about two weeks in, maybe three weeks in, I decided that there was nothing for me to learn from economics. I just realized this has nothing helpful for me. I don't need this class. Um, I had to take it, so I couldn't drop out of it. But I basically just sort of mentally um, checked out of the class at that point. Second semester, senior year, you're kind of not too into grades at that point. My children still are, but most uh, people kind of check out anyway um, at that uh, point um, in their lives. Um, And what was going on for me was, one, I just wasn't really connecting with the teacher of that class and the material. I didn't really get it. I found it very confusing. But also, I'd already decided um, in college I was going to be an art major, or not an art major, uh, that was my wife, I'm an English major. Um, uh, uh, that's how bonded we are. I forgot what major uh, I had. I'm an English major and um, uh, figured, hey, English majors, we're going to be poor anyway, so economics makes no difference uh, to me. Now, many years later, post-college, I was reading a news article, and it was talking about economic trends, and it suddenly hit me. I have no idea what they're talking about, and I wish I did. Um, And so I actually went to the library, got out a book um, that uh, dealt somewhat with economics. It wasn't like an intense, you know, economics textbook, but had economic themes in it. And I found it fascinating. I realized, like, oh, you know, business, marketplace things, they are actually really interesting. I began to fairly regularly, not as much as novels, but fairly regularly read books about business and economics and money and found it super fascinating. 
And I look back on that class, and I think, I bet there were great things for me to learn in that class, but I too quickly decided there's nothing for me here, right? This is not interesting to me, and therefore I'm going to sort of switch off and not really learn all the good things, actually, that were there for me to learn. Now, I share this because I think sometimes, perhaps, um, we, I know this can be the case for me, I would guess it can be for you as well, that when we come to the, the word of the Lord, the scriptures, at times we may come to certain books, we may come to certain sections, and we just think, there's nothing here for me. You know, I, I know it's the Bible, but honestly, there's really no application. And we may feel that even when we know, right, I shouldn't feel that way, right? I believe it's God's word, thanks be to God, right? I believe that the Lord speaks to us today, that it is relevant for our lives today. I think it's still hard, right, not to fall into that mentality and just sort of check on and think, well, this one I can probably skip. This one has sort of had its time, but it's not right now. We can feel that way, I think, especially when we get into the minor prophets um, of the Old Testament, and perhaps in particular when we come to a book like Obadiah today. Obadiah basically is 21 verses, right? Again, the shortest book of the Old Testament, the shortest of the the minor prophets. And basically the message is, Edom is going to be judged. Here is the judgment that is coming against the nation of Edom. And we could perhaps read that and think, okay, I'm not an Edomite. Um, I don't even know where Edom is because it's not around anymore. Um, And I know God judges, right? I've, I've read other scriptures. I understand that God is the judge. So what does this have for me? So, of course, today, that's what I want to look at, um, as we do every Sunday, to say, where is the Lord perhaps speaking to us? What can we take to heart um, in this? And I want to look at basically two warnings and one promise that I believe are here in the book of Obadiah that um, I believe perhaps are things that we can take to heart, that we can bring to the Lord and say, what do I do with these warnings? What do I do with this promise? How do they speak to me? Because we believe, again, that God's word does speak to us. Uh, First of all, though, hey, we got a whole Old Testament book here. Let's give sort of an overview of what's happening um, in um, this book. So you can leave today saying, I know Obadiah, right? I know it well. It begins um, uh, actually with very little information about Obadiah. One of the challenges, actually, the book of Obadiah is we don't for sure know when it was written. We don't know, you know, where Obadiah was from. We don't know who was king when he was prophesying. Information that we have in many of the other prophets we don't actually have in the book of Obadiah. All we know is this is a vision of Obadiah, and then the vision begins. And basically, verses 1 through 9, as you look um, there in your bulletin, are words of judgment. Basically, the Lord, through Obadiah, his servant, telling Edom, this is the judgment that is coming. Judgment is coming. Here is what it's going to look like, right? And a couple things that are worth noting about um, Edom. One, and Joel mentioned this last week, if you're here last week, um, as Joel preached on the book of Amos, Edom are the descendants of Esau. Um, and um, Israel, right, the descendants of Israel, his name originally Jacob, got turned um, to Israel, children of Abraham, both um, uh, Esau and um, Jacob were grandchildren of Abraham, right? And if you remember the stories of Jacob and Esau, they had a lot of tension uh, between them, right? They didn't always get along well, to say the least, and that turned out to be the case for their descendants as well. So Edom, you have the descendants of Esau, who often were in tension and often in, um, at times, even violent um, uh, conflict with the descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And so that's who's being spoken to, Edom. We're actually spoken to quite a bit um, in the scriptures and in the prophets. 
And here you can see, as it's speaking to um, Edom, one thing that's um, helpful to know and makes sense of some of the imagery giving here is that Edom was based in a mountainous area. And so you have the, that sense of your lofty dwelling, you're in the cliffs of the rock. They were in a mountainous area, and that area was basically seen as being very hard to attack. They kind of had natural defenses that surrounded them, and that led to a sense for Edom of we're impenetrable, right? We're beyond attack, right? Because we have so many great defenses, nobody can hurt us. And so that was sort of a mindset we know that Edom had at that time. And so again, 1 through 9, you get those words of judgment. Then in 10 through 14, there on the bottom of 6, the beginning of page um, 7, you get more the why. Judgment is coming, you will be judged, the Lord is saying, and here's why. Here's specifically what you did that you have to answer for, that you will be judged for. Now, as I said, we don't know for sure the time period when um, Obadiah was speaking. But most people believe, most prophets believe that what's being spoken of there in 10 through 14 actually um, is in regard to um, the exile um, that the nation of Judah, Judah is the southern kingdom, there's Israel, I'm going to use Israel kind of speak of the entire nation of Israel, but Judah specifically is the southern kingdom, when they were attacked by Babylonians and basically brought into exile, um, and the temple was destroyed. So a, a key, horrible moment um, in the nation of Israel's history, and it's probably speaking of that, and when that happened, when the exile happened, when the attack from the Babylonians happened, that Edom basically was there not only not intervening and not helping the nation of Israel, but actually celebrating and even taking part in that attack and in that violence. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But that seems to be what's being spoken of there. So you have the why. Judgment is coming. Here's why it is coming. And then in verse 15 and 16, there's sort of a surprising change. Even though this has been all about Edom, suddenly verse 15 we hear, "...for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations." The day of the Lord is a strong theme. It will come up uh, throughout the minor prophets, right? The day of judgment, the day in which the Lord will make things right and bring his full justice. And and now suddenly it's the day of the Lord for all the nations, right? Now it's not just Edom. It's everybody that the Lord is speaking to. Some of you may have um, gotten the, the email um, that we send out, our sort of uh, weekly newsletter, and it had a link to a video, um, great video by the Bible Project, um, who um, do, do these um, really um, very helpful overviews of books of the Bible. I mean, if you looked at that and looked at the overview um, of Obadiah, right, the overview is about as long as it takes to read the whole book, so, so you can um, watch it. Um, uh, it mentions the fact that it's significant that in Hebrew, right, the word for Edom is pretty much the same word for humanity. And so as the Lord is speaking of Edom, he is speaking specifically to Edom. And yet Edom, pretty obviously, is also representative for humanity. We can see that in English as well, and that the first right, person created is named Adam, right? Human, Adam and Edom being um, similar. And so that shift seems to be telling us, this is for Edom, but it applies to everybody. And then we have another shift in verse 17, then to the end of the book, where we get basically the restoration of Israel, right? And the restoration of Israel, the promise uh, to God's people actually that um, their kingdom will expand and therefore God's kingdom will expand. And so it's a promise again that actually um, Israel will one day actually possess these nations that have possessed them and have done violence to them. They will actually be, um, it will be their kingdom um, that will spread. The kingdom shall be the Lord's, um, very clearly. It says at the end. All right, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this vision, again, of the Lord's judgment against Edom? 
like I said, two warnings. And the first warning, right, that I, I believe we see um, and we can take to heart in that first section, um, and speaking of the judgment coming against Edom, is a warning against pride, right? I mean, that's really at the heart of what the Lord is saying to Edom. Beware of your pride, right? Isn't it great to read the Lord saying, I will bring you down, right? You have um, put yourself in this lofty place. You have decided there is no one that can stop us, right? I mean, we are, again, we may be a small nation, but we have these natural defenses. There is no one that can ever stop us. There is no one that can bring us down. And the Lord is basically saying, verse 3, right, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rocks and your lofty dwellings. You are saying, no one can bring me down to the ground. But the Lord is saying, I can, right? You are not greater than the Lord. You have put yourself above others. You look down on others. But actually, I will come against your pride. We see, right, the warning about the plunders coming. Again, they have thought we're impenetrable. Nobody can break into our defenses. And the Lord is saying, actually, they can and they will. Um, and on that day near the end, I will destroy the wise men out of Edom. You have prided yourself on how wise you are. You've prided yourself on your understanding, but actually, I'm going to come against this. And again, as we consider, this is a word for Edom, um, historical, and a word for humanity, we can ask the question, right, Lord, where's their pride? Right? It's always a good question to ask, right? I may not be Edom, all right? I may not be this, you know, mountainous nation, but I too have pride. And are there ways in which I have put myself above others, in which I look down, in which I think I am beyond the Lord's judgment, right? I, I am sort of exempt. Are there places where we're a little too impressed with ourselves? And now the challenge about pride, there are many challenges about pride, but one is it's hard to know exactly when have you been prideful, right? I, I heard an interview once with Tim Keller where he was saying, you know, when you steal something, you know you've stolen something, right? I mean, usually, right? At least you should know, right? I mean, that wasn't mine, and I took it. I didn't pay for it. Someone didn't want me to take it, but I took it anyway. So in general, right, you know when you've stolen. You know, using your parents' Netflix password, well, I'll let you work that out with the Lord, but, but in general, I think the lines are pretty clear, right? You know, this is stealing, but with pride, actually, and many, you know, um, sins like pride, it's not always clear. And, of course, the very nature of pride is we don't want to admit we're wrong. We are too impressed with ourselves, right? We, we think we can do no wrong. So oftentimes with pride, we don't see it because that's what pride does. It blinds us to our own faults, our own sinfulness. Now, my suggestion then to take this to heart is not, okay, sit down and make a list of all the bad things about you and how terrible you are. Not at all. Right? Self-hatred actually is just sort of another form of pride, right? The Lord created you. The Lord has given you gifts. It's not prideful to say, this is who I am. This is how God has wired me. These are the gifts and passions and blessings the Lord has given me. Rather, what I would encourage you as we take this to heart is we say, Lord, what is this warning for me? It's just to go to the Lord and trust, Lord, is there pride in my life? Where perhaps do I need to hear, hey, you're too impressed with yourself, You've put yourself on a pedestal, and the Lord would say kindly and gently, but perhaps in a corrective word, you need to come down. You need to actually realize ways in which you are, again, being blinded, being hurt by your own pride. But again, that's something we come to the Lord with. Again, my encouragement is not, all right, think as hard as you can about all the ways you're prideful, but actually say, Lord, show me my pride, right? Show me through your words, throw me through your church, through your people, show me through my own conscience, perhaps, and the Spirit of God within me, making me aware, where is their pride? 
And so that's a warning, but it's also a warning, notice, that's given to individuals, certainly the people of Edom, but it's given to a community. So I would suggest that's another challenge here, is to say, what does it look like for a community to be prideful? I mean, that's harder, but I think it's what we're confronted by, by the scriptures, again and again, the Lord speaks to a group of people and says, you have to be aware of your pride, right? Your pride has led you astray. Now, again, that's harder for us to do, but I think it's a question as well that we come to the Lord and say, Lord, where is the pride in the organizations I'm a part of and the groups I'm a part of? And how do I, as a follower of you, as one who has submitted to you, right, be a person of humility and help perhaps through you to bring humility? Now, I realize I'm saying this on July 3rd, right, the day before 4th of July. Am I saying that tomorrow, you know, don't listen to the song, proud to be American, you know, shame on you, you know, don't be proud of your country. No, I'm not saying that. And actually, I think we can differentiate, I I hope I'm not stretching things here, between being proud of something and being prideful. I think there's a difference, right? When Jesus talks about in the Gospels, when he talks about the master saying to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That feels to me about the same thing as saying, I'm proud of you. I think the Lord is proud of his people, and we can receive that and hear that from the Lord, right? Just like a dad is proud of his kids, right? A mom is proud of their children. You can be proud of your family. You can be proud of your country. You can be proud of your church, right? I think it's right, right, for us to celebrate, right, on 4th of July and other days, the blessings we have, right, as Americans, and to celebrate the good things, the many, many good things that our country represents and stands for and has taken a stand for. So I think that is right and good to be proud. But if we are proud of an organization we're part of, if we're proud of a family, a community that we're we're a part of, all the more reason to say, Lord, show us our pride. Because I'm proud of this community, because I care about this community, I do not want pride to hurt it. I do not want to be misled. I don't want to think that I'm, I'm, I'm so great, that we're so great, that actually we're missing out, Lord, on ways you're wanting to grow us. That you're missing out, actually, on good work and perhaps correction that we need. A number of years ago, I was uh, listening to a song, kind of a goofy song by a singer named Sufian Stevens um, about the 50 states. Um, and uh, apparently, he used to sing a lot in concert, and it would be about all 50 states, and he recites the different states, and he talks about different uniquenesses among um, the different states in the song. I was listening to the song, and as I was listening, I was suddenly filled with just such a, like, a palatable sense of being so thankful to be part of this country. And again, the song's kind of silly, but as it talked about the different states, I thought, I love being part of a country that has such weird and strange diversity, right? I mean that, you know, Massachusetts and Alabama, like we're both, you know, like we're, they're part of the same state. Um, uh, I'm doing two states that I think we're mostly disconnected from, so I'm not picking on anybody, right? But I mean, there's, there's that diversity. And again, it was really, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And I was, I was really struck by that. Like, I love, I love that. But of course, to, to acknowledge that and to say that and not acknowledge you know what? The United States aren't always real united. I don't think that's a surprise um, to anyone here, right? There's significant division. And it would be prideful, I believe, not to say, yes, there is division, right? And there's actually ways in which we can turn against, uh, you know, our fellow countrymen and women and, and actually be divisive and, and, um, and, you know, tear one another apart. And so I believe it's, uh, it's, it's seeking not to be prideful to say, Lord, how are you correcting us? as a country? What is the role I can play in that, right? And whatever that looks like. And that applies to church as well. Again, I hope people that are part of this community would say I'm proud to be part of Church of the Cross. I can tell you I'm very proud um, to, to serve here at Church of the Cross. But that inspires me or should inspire me. I hope it inspires me to continue to be on my knees before the Lord, saying, Lord, are there ways in which we are prideful? 
are the ways in which, Lord, you are correcting us and growing us and refining us. May we hear that. May we listen to that and become more and more who you want us to be. Because I'm proud of this church, may I not be prideful. So let's take to heart again the words against Edom, warning them of the pride. Then that second section, if you look at verses 10 through 14, again, you have um, the Lord basically saying, this is what you've done. This is what I have seen, right? The Lord, again, the Lord of, of judgment and justice says, this is the injustice. And it's very interesting the way it's um, written, isn't it? It begins with, on that day, you stood aloof, on that day, right? This is what happened. And then starting in verse 17, it becomes like present tense. It's like the Lord saying, this may have happened a while ago, but I am saying to you right now, you should not have done it, right? It's like they're sort of revisiting that moment. You should have heard my voice saying, do not do this. Do not gloat over um, uh, the misfortune of others, right? Do not enter the gates and, and loot. Do not cut off the fugitives of the people of Israel. So the Lord is, you know, very present to them at that moment. You should not have done this. You should have heard my voice saying, this is wrong. And what I'm struck by and what I see a warning in that section is actually a warning against aloofness, against apathy. And you notice that there's, there's a bit of a progression. Right, verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. On that day that strangers carried off his wealth. So it really begins with, right, you know, these are your, your brothers. Yes, you haven't always had a good relationship, right? But this is, you know, Jacob and you are Esau, right? And yet you stood aloof when they were being invaded, When um, the Babylonians came in and brought them into exile and destroyed their temple, you stood aloof. You were apathetic. And you can imagine, right, the Edomites saying, hey, look, we didn't, we were not the Babylonians. We didn't invade them, right? I mean, what could we do, right? There's nothing we could do. And the Lord's confronting them on that. But then there's a progression. You stood aloof. And then you actually gloated. You celebrated their defeat. And then you actually boasted. In their day of distress, you use it as an opportunity to boast. Never could happen to us, right? Too bad for them, right? You know, we were better prepared. And then you looted. And then it became not just that you stood aloof while the nation was being looted, but you joined in with the looting. And then, actually, you cut off the fugitives. You actually then did violence um, to this nation. You came against the people in their time of weakness. And again, as I read that, I'm struck by... That progression, right? Not that it always follows like this for us. Not that I'm saying if anyway you're apathetic, you'll eventually be attacking people. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting actually as you think about our prayer of confession, that those of you who are familiar with our service, you know, which we'll say in a few minutes, right? We pray about things left undone and things done. And I'm struck that oftentimes it's the things left undone that lead to the things done, to the sins done. As we, again, perhaps get caught up in aloofness and apathy, that can then lead to a greater acting out in sinful ways. And so is there a warning here to not stand aloof, to be aware of where we can become perhaps hard-hearted, where we can stand away from injustice? Now, if you were here um, last week, again, when um, Joel was in the book of Amos, there's a lot about injustice in that book that Joel hit on. And obviously, there's so much injustice in the world. And I'm not saying, look, if you are not upset about every single injustice in the world, if you're not doing something to try to address every single injustice, you know, shame on you, you're aloof. That is not what I'm saying. And also, you know, part of trusting in the Lord is actually caring, you know, taking the, 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 all the problems of this earth, as we say in one of our prayers, and, and really giving them to the cross of the Christ, to the cross of Christ and trusting him. And so I'm not suggesting, right, you need to sort of carry a constant anxiety. But I do believe, and I wonder if there's something here of 
places where we can just become hard-hearted, understandably so, where we can become aloof because we are so overwhelmed by the sin of this world and the challenges of this world. Is there a place to hear that and to say, Lord, don't let my heart become hard. Don't let me become aloof to wrongdoing, that I actually become so sort of um, separated from that, that I begin to actually be drawn into it. Again, I'm not suggesting try to think up something, try to figure out, okay, where am I aloof? I've got to figure it out. I'll make a list of all the places I'm aloof. But rather, again, to bring this to the Lord who confronts and comes against sin and say, Lord, where is there uh, an apathy? Where is there perhaps a place that you want my heart to be broken with the things that break your heart? And to trust that the Lord will do that. And to trust that actually as he softens your heart, and even if that means sort of perhaps feeling more of the injustice, that there's also hope that goes with that. Right? As we push into the reality of the fallenness of this world, it's an opportunity to push even more into the redeeming work of the Lord, which then we get in this final section. So we have two warnings and again a promise. And this ends with a promise. But again, you may read this and say, well, this actually sounds like a promise of revenge. Like, am I supposed to celebrate this? I mean, it basically ends with, Edom, what you did is going to be done to you. Right? It's like God's saying, my people now are going to get their revenge. And so you were like the fire, but now you're going to be the stubble, and the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph will be the flame and the fire. And, you know, and now my nation will actually take over all the other nations. Again, maybe you read this and think, I don't, like, do I celebrate that? It feels, it feels kind of violent. It feels even a little petty, perhaps, um, uh, these words of retribution. I think there are a couple things to keep in mind um, as we read these. One, this is the Lord. Right? It is the Lord's call to bring justice. That is what he does. Right? He, it's, this isn't a, a vengeful person um, talking. This is the Lord God who is ultimately bringing things right, who is ultimately bringing shalom. And he is sharing, this is the way that shalom will happen through the spreading of my kingdom. There will ultimately be justice. We also should keep in mind as we read this, um, the, the greater context of the Lord's words um, that the Lord repeatedly warns his own people warns the nation of Israel, warns the people of Judah of their own sin. And again, we've seen that the last two weeks. If you're here for Hosea and Amos, we continue to see that um, in the minor prophets. Obadiah is actually a little interesting in that, a little different in that. And there's really no word of judgment against Israel in this passage. But we know that the Lord has said to his own people, beware of your pride, beware of your aloofness, right? Turn from the Lord. We know actually that the exile that they experience is connected to their idolatry. And they're continued turning away from the Lord. But finally, actually, as we read these final verses, we see, yes, the Lord is a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy. And it's not, well, sometimes he's a God of judgment, sometimes he's a God of mercy. Or, you know, in the old days he was a God of judgment, now he's a God of mercy. He is always the God who judges and comes against evil and brings justice, and he is the God who is full of mercy and full of love. Right? We may at times feel torn between those two, but for God, it's not attention. It is who he is. He is fully just, and he is fully merciful. If you look at um, verses uh, 15 and 16, when it speaks to the nations, it speaks about them drinking. Right? All the nations shall drink continually. What does that mean? Right? Why does it talk about them drinking? Why is that connected with judgment? Well, various places um, in uh, the scriptures, we see judgment um, associated with the cup of the Lord. There's like this cup that will be poured out, that imagery of a cup being used and judgment being drunk um, by those who face um, judgment from God. But as you think about that, think about the Gospels. As we see Jesus ministering, 
And the, the few different times where he will speak of a cup that he has to drink. He will say, right, this cup that I have to drink. And if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he went to his death, he came before the Father and he prayed, right, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? What was he speaking of? Right? He was speaking of the cup of judgment that he would drink as he bore our sins upon himself, right? And, of course, there was no other way. That was the way for our salvation, was it for Jesus to die in our place, and Jesus did it. Right? He said to the Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He boldly went to the cross for our sake. So that cup of judgment that's spoken of there, we read this and we know the Lord took that cup upon himself, right? He took our sins upon himself so that we might know mercy. And that message is for all the nations, right? The nations that are being warned of judgment here are then presented with the mercy of God um, as the church spreads the good news of Jesus. And so when we get to that final imagery of the kingdom of God expanding, yes, that's speaking there to the nation of Israel in particular, but we have been brought into God's kingdom through faith in Christ, We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so that is a promise for us, a promise of his kingdom growing. I think it's very significant, actually, that the book of Obadiah is followed by the book of Jonah, right? probably the minor prophet we're most familiar with, right? You learn about Jonah early on um, as a kid because there's so many great stories about Jonah. And if you remember, right, when Jonah finally gets to, to Nineveh and he preaches judgment, and the judgment he preaches is probably very similar to the beginning of the book of Obadiah, what happens? The nation of Nineveh repents. They turn from their sin, and they are spared. God is a God of mercy. Right? He sent Jonah to call people to repentance, and they repented. Right? And he sent Jesus, and Jesus came willingly in order to bear our sins. And so we can receive this promise. And so my encouragement is, as you think about these warnings, right? the warning of pride, the warning of aloofness, you hear them not in a fearful way, because we do not have to be afraid. Our sins have all been paid for by Jesus, right? We have full forgiveness through faith in him. But we actually hear them as an invitation to greater freedom, to greater joy, to greater living in that salvation. Let's pray for that. Lord, I do pray that you would continue to teach us. Give us a hunger, Lord, to learn from your word. As we consider the words of Obadiah, Lord, that you spoke through your servant, Obadiah, may we hear, Lord, what you are speaking to us today. Lord, I do pray where there is pride, where there perhaps is aloofness or apathy that you are wanting to shine your light upon, that we would receive that light and know your freedom. And Lord, I pray for each one of us today that we would celebrate your mercy, that we would know the goodness that you have paid for our sins and that in you we have freedom. I pray each one of us would know and receive that invitation to turn to you and receive new life in you. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.